All right, Jeremiah 31. So we've got a lot to cover. Um, I'm going to probably camp on chapter 31 the most, um, and then we'll just touch on 32. Hopefully you spent some time reading ahead. Um, and uh, I've been very excited to teach this portion of Scripture. Um, Jeremiah, as we've, you've, if you've been here, you know the majority of it is prophetic rebuke, um, you know, prophecies of judgment coming, declaring the condition, the heart condition of God's people. Peppered throughout, as we've seen, there have been little glimpses of God's plan for them, his grace, compassion, kindness, uh, and uh, his long suffering towards them. But here, the Lord really brings it home uh, for his people and for Jeremiah, too. Um, just as we're looking at this, uh, we have Jeremiah actually making a statement here um, that is uh, uh, very neat uh, to see once we get to it. But, but I'd encourage you just to picture as we're going through this, the, uh, just Jeremiah's heart as he's been, you know, castigating his own people through the Lord. Uh, he's been having to stand and be that bronze wall of resistance against them to stand up against the false prophets who've been saying judgment's not coming. Um, and, and for Jeremiah to constantly endure this persecution and, and everything for standing upon the message that the Lord has given him. And then for the Lord to kind of open this up for Jeremiah and to show him just really what his plan is. It's beautiful. So verse 31, it, or chapter 31, verse 1, it says, at the same time. Now, uh, context is key when you're studying. So we say, what same time? What is this talking about? Well, verse 24 of chapter 30, it's right there. In the latter days, you will consider it. So here we started last week looking at this future glory um, one of the Bible commentators I was reading, he called this portion the book of Israel's restoration. Um, and you see, and we'll see it, this statement, behold, the days are coming. And we'll see it repeated over and over. Uh, behold, the days are coming. And this is truly what we see, the restoration of Israel. Um, but this takes place in the latter days. Um, there is, with Bible prophecy, most of the time near fulfillment, meaning it's happening for that generation that's hearing these things for the first time, but there's far fulfillment as well. Um, we, of course, will see, as we've looked at, we see Jeremiah, he prophesied in 70 years they would come back to the land. 70 years of captivity in Babylon, and then they would be back. And I would say some of this is partially fulfilled in that. Um, but we see ultimately by a lot of things in here, a lot of indicators that this is speaking of an even further future time. Um, and that's what uh, the Lord even says there in verse 24. In the latter days, you'll consider it. He's basically saying you may not understand right now, but at the end times, in the last days, God's people, Israel, will look back at these prophecies and will look back at what God has brought them through from this point on into the future restoration of Israel, and they'll consider 
the Lord's grace and his love, long-suffering, kindness, compassion towards them. Uh, it's beautiful. But he says, at the same time, verse 1 says the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. And we've seen this promise throughout scriptures. In fact, there's a little couple little slips on your tables. And um, those portions, there's 16 there, those verses there, all use this same phrasing of the Lord being the God of his people and the people being his people. Um, and this promise that we've actually seen throughout, we have the covenant that the Lord gave Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, we saw it with David, um, was included that same promise. The difference is here is that the Lord says, I will be the God of all the families of Israel. Before it was, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm the God of David. But here we see what's the change. He's the God of all the families of Israel. Meaning that he will be, have that same personal, close relationship that he had with the forefathers, that relationship of Abraham being the friend of God. That relationship with Isaac and Jacob, the relationship of David and the Lord, that that kind of relationship will be for all the families of Israel. And that's that promise, is when the Lord is the God of all of them, that close, intimate, personal relationship with each person. That is the promise that's coming. In Jeremiah 4, we see the Lord pleading with the people, saying, return to me, return to me. I'm your God, but return to me. You've left me, but they wouldn't return. And we see, of course, like I said, throughout Jeremiah, we've seen the Lord just, you know, calling out that judgment is coming. Judgment is coming, giving them chance after chance after chance to repent. But they don't. And the Lord, he, he gives the true uh, diagnosis of their condition in chapter 30, verse 12, where it says, For thus says the Lord, your affliction, it's incurable. I mean, you can't be cured of this. Your wound is severe. There's nothing truly the Lord is saying, there's nothing that you are going to be able to do that's going to heal this. It's something I'm going to have to do, is what the Lord is saying there. The judgment is coming. The judgment is not going to be withheld from the people because they haven't turned back to the Lord. They didn't hear him. They didn't return when he called them to return. That's what we're, we've been seeing. The judgment is coming. But at the same time, there's still the promise of grace towards them. Verse 2, it says, For thus says the Lord, The people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Israel when I went to give him rest. The picture there should call to mind for us, if we're students of the scriptures, but also for the people of Israel, would bring them back to their time in the wilderness wandering, where they were delivered from Egypt, and they're there, and the Lord is with them in the wilderness, that pillar of fire by night, the pillar of cloud by day, the Lord protecting them from the pursuing Egyptian army, the Lord providing for them, him being the rock in the wilderness. All of those things that they had there, they will have even more so in an abundance in the future because 
they're going to finally have the actual rest that was promised to them. Not just this promised land where they still had to go in and fight against giants in the land, against the Canaanites and the Philistines and these other groups throughout uh, the promised land, but they're going to actually have true rest in the Lord. And that's the promise he's given them. Verse 3, it says, The Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. I mean, that is one of the most beautiful verses in the scriptures to me, is the Lord's love, and he's speaking it to Israel. Uh, This is the only time this word love is used in the entire book of Jeremiah. This focus centered here on the Lord's perpetual, everlasting love, unchanging love of them. And the fact that it's not used throughout the rest of Jeremiah just brings it out even more so. In the midst of all the judgment, in the midst of all these things, the Lord says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. And the Lord has told Israel throughout their time that he has loved them and that his love is an everlasting love. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Look at verse 6. It says, For you, this is the Lord speaking to Israel, for you are a holy people, or Moses is speaking to them, you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. Remember, it was Abraham, the one man God called out and then produced the family. And then it was this, this other smaller family, or uh, still small family in Israel, Jacob, his family, that he called them. It says, it's not because you were great in number, for you were the least of all peoples. But, verse 8, because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore, know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. And he repays those who hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments, which I command you today to observe them. The Lord gave his promise that he loved them, and it was an everlasting, eternal love. But with that love came the responsibility to be obedient to him. And that's where they failed. That's that's what we've been reading about in Jeremiah. Go back to Jeremiah It says, again, I will build you, and you shall be rebuilt, O virgin Israel, virgin of Israel. You shall again be adorned with your tambourines, and shall go forth in the dances of those who rejoice. 
You shall yet plant vines on the mountains of Samaria. The planter shall plant and eat them as ordinary food. See, for, for Israel at this time, the mountains of Samaria were where the judgment was coming from, in that direction, coming from the north, Babylon. The Chaldeans were coming down from there. And yet, rather than destruction and rather than looking for uh, the enemy to come, instead they would be there just planting and getting fruit and abundance and food. The planter shall plant and eat them as ordinary food, for there shall be a day when the watchman will cry on Mount Ephraim, meaning all the mountain range there of the tribe, tribal lands of Ephraim, arise and let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. And what's beautiful about this is not just a picture of Judah, the southern kingdom being restored, but this is the northern kingdom as well. They had been separated for hundreds of years at this point two different kingdoms, no peace between them. The northern kingdom had been taken off to Assyria a long time ago in judgment. And yet the Lord says they're going to be as one. The, the men of the north are going to be coming down and, and, and telling the men of the south, come on, let's go and worship the Lord in Zion. Let's go up together. It's beautiful. For thus says the Lord, sing with gladness for Jacob and shout among the chief of the nations. Now this commandment is shifted. It's no longer just speaking of Israel and the Lord speaking uh, there, but it's a command to, I believe, the nations to give praise. It says, proclaim, give praise and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. And then the Lord says, behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the ends of the earth. Now there are those who want to make this just a prophecy of the return of Israel from Babylon. There, there are those who would make this um, a prophecy that has been fulfilled already, um, and in one sense saying that these prophecies don't apply to Israel that exists now, to the Jews that live here and now. Um, and you'll hear it with people who... Um, believe in replacement theology, that the church has replaced Israel. Uh, there are uh, in a lot of the Reformed churches, but not just the Reformed churches, it's kind of spread throughout most of evangelical churches as well, this idea that we've replaced Israel. Um, and they'll, we as believers in the future restoration and glory of Israel as we read about in the scriptures we would point to prophecies like this and say the Lord hasn't fully done this yet but they would want to throw that out and say no that's been fulfilled already and then they rejected Jesus the Messiah and so the Lord's done with them but it really flies in the face of scriptures this verse itself um is contradictory to that because it says, Behold, I'll bring them from the north country, which is Babylon, Chaldea, that area. But what's the next part? It says, And gather them from the ends of the earth. The Lord hasn't done that fully yet. He started to. We've seen that in fulfillment of Ezekiel, um, the prophecies of the, the dry bones that will be gathered back together, a people that was no longer the Lord's people being brought back in. We've been seeing that. Dan's talked about it, how we've seen shipments of Jewish people from other countries coming in on Aliyah to Israel to come back and be part of the land, uh, part of 
God's covenant people there in the land again. Uh, but ultimately, this is going to be fulfilled at the end of the tribulation. Uh, when the Lord comes back and sets up his eternal kingdom, the millennial kingdom, um, uh, not eternal kingdom, but the kingdom for a thousand years uh, on the earth uh, with Israel as the centerpiece uh, of his kingdom. And uh, that's when we'll see this fully fulfilled here. But look at what it says. It says, I'll bring them from the north country and gather them from the ends of the earth. Among them, the blind and the lame, the woman with child and the one who labors with child together. These are the, the people that are uh, kind of the cast-offs of society, really. If you look at our culture even nowadays, the blind, the lame, the woman with child, the one who labors with child, the Lord is not going to leave anyone behind. And he's going to make it so that those who, who uh, have no personal strength and have things going on with them that would tr- normally prevent them from coming, that he's going to bring them along with them. Uh, it says, a great throng shall return there. And look at verse 9. This is the attitude that they'll have. They shall come with weeping, with supplications. I will lead them. Uh, I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way in which they shall not stumble. The Lord says they're going to come with weeping. There's going to be sorrow and with supplications. They're going to be crying out to the Lord. And the Lord says, I'm going to lead them. I'm going to do it. Throughout this, we see the Lord saying, I will. I will. We see it in verse one. I will be the God of all the families of Israel. In verse four, we see it, I will build you and you shall be rebuilt. We see it in verse 8, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the ends of the earth. And we see that here, I will lead them in verse 9. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters. That reminds me of Psalm 23. The Lord says, um, or the David, the psalmist says that the Lord leads us beside still waters. Uh, But that verse, that next portion, that sentence there, it says, in a straight way in which they shall not stumble. A a Bible translator, he translated it this way, is on a path so smooth that they cannot stumble, is how the Lord will bring them back. I mean, it's the Lord here doing all of this. Remember, their, their affliction was incurable. Their wound is severe. There's, there's, there's no way for them to heal themselves or to bring them back. And the Lord says, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it for you. You guys, this is, I mean, it's, a, it's a prophecy of the future restoration of Israel. But this is the Lord's heart. This is what he did for us on the cross. Right? We, sheep who had gone astray, dead in our sins and trespasses, born in sin, we have an affliction before we know the Lord that's incurable. Sin and the wages of sin, which is death. Our wound is severe. We have no way to heal ourselves. There's no way for us to salvation. And the Lord saw, sees, and knows that. The Bible says that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us on the cross. He made the way. He knew that we are unable 
to get to him, to fulfill his commandments that he's called us to, to uh, get to heaven on our own. The only way is death. And so he paid the price for us. And he said, I will do it. And the Lord has made the way easy for us. A path so smooth we cannot stumble. It's simply by believing in him, by placing our faith in him. It's not, we don't have to be baptized to get saved. We don't have to go through all the sacraments to be a a child of God. We don't have to... uh, sell everything we own. We don't have to go through all of these other things. We don't need to go up and make sacrifices all the time. We don't have to do any of those things. It's simply placing our faith in him. Like Pastor Dan was talking about in John 3, right? The picture of the children of Israel in the wilderness bitten by the fiery serpents because of their sin. And all they had to do was look up at this bronze serpent, judgment upon sin upon the, on this pole. And in looking and, and believing that the Lord would heal them because of his promise that he would, they're healed. And that's the same thing for us. It's a simple, easy path for us uh, to place our faith in him. doesn't mean the walk with the Lord afterwards isn't easy. We all know that, right? The Lord promises some difficulty afterwards. But the salvation for us is freely offered. And the Lord, he's showing that to Israel here. He's he's painting this picture for them. The beautiful thing is the salvation that we enjoy now in Jesus. They can also enjoy now if if the Jews place their faith in him. But we see throughout scripture, the Lord says there's a partial blindness on them against uh, seeing the salvation of the Lord. And yet the things that we'll see, like we're looking at the judgment of Jeremiah to really cure Israel of their idolatry, to heal the land that they had abused for so long, um, and, and to really teach them about his holiness, the Lord sends them off into captivity. Well, they've rejected Jesus, and what do we see in the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel and these other prophetic books that talk about the day of Jacob's trouble? Again, it's the Lord dealing with them. It's horrific. The judgment that's taking place, but it, it's the time that the Lord is saying, I am your God. You've rejected me. Turn to me. And then there will be that beautiful day when they look upon the one whom they pierced and mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, where they recognize Jesus as their Savior, and then they will be saved. Uh, but it's going to take some judgment between now and then so but let's get back to this it says for i am a father to israel the end of verse 9 and ephraim is my firstborn oh this was so beautiful i love that story i don't know a few years ago we went through genesis on a wednesday night and if you remember uh when uh the children of israel had the actual sons of israel the sons of jacob had been jealous against joseph They sold him into slavery, right? Um, And after all this time that Joseph spends in in Egypt, and then there's the famine in the land in Canaan, and his brothers come, and they're seeking to get food there, and you know the whole story, the back and forth, and and all of those things that take place. Well, after all of that, um, the sons of Jacob bring Jacob, their aging father, Israel, to Egypt, to finally be reunited with Joseph. 
And when when they do the two do meet, Joseph brings out his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Manasseh was the older son, Ephraim was the second born. And, and Joseph says, these are going to be as though they're my own sons. And in fact, that's why we see their tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh, their tribes in Israel. But what does Israel do? What does Jacob do when he goes to bless them? He goes to lay his hands on them. But rather than blessing Manasseh as the firstborn, uh, I don't know if his hands swap or if the boys are on the wrong side, but he places his hands and he blesses Ephraim as the firstborn, giving him that, that, that privileged position. And, and I was just reminded of that, the grace of the Lord. And that's what we see, uh, again, throughout uh, the, the scriptures is the Lord uh, doing things that are meant to give, to bring salvation to his people and the Lord knowing and, and dealing with them. And just this beautiful picture, but he says, I'm a father to Israel and Ephraim is my firstborn. Uh, and that's Israel speaking of the southern kingdom and Ephraim of the northern kingdom. Um, and it's just this beautiful picture of the Lord giving privilege to those who don't deserve it, giving preference to those who don't deserve it, the Lord blessing them and showing grace upon them. You think of it, uh, he's been dealing with Judah and their things, and, and they had faithful kings. Not all of the kings were faithful and good kings, but Assyri uh, uh, the northern tribes, uh, Israel, they had no good kings whatsoever. And their wickedness had grown so quickly that they were judged first. And kind of as an example, not just as an example, but they were an example to Judah, to the southern tribes. And yet the Lord says, Ephraim's my firstborn. He's bringing them back. He's showing grace to them as well. Look at verse 10. It says, Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of one stronger than he. And that's beautiful. We'll see in the future time that the Lord redeems Jacob, ransoms him from the Antichrist. Remember, uh, in, in the seven-year tribulation, the Antichrist uh, has that peace treaty with Israel for a time. And uh, many believe some of that has to do with setting up the third temple in Israel. Uh, and even if not, there's going to be the third temple and it's going to have this false uh, sense of peace there in Israel with the Antichrist and abundance and all of these things. But in the middle of that peace treaty, he breaks it. The Antichrist does. And he sets up on a wing of the temple the abomination that causes desolation, the image of the beast, and causes everyone to bow down and worship it and receive uh, the mark of the beast either on their right hand or on their forehead. Well, the scriptures talk about at that point that Israel will see that take place and they'll realize that, hey, this is not our Messiah. He's not our God. He's not someone we should be following whatsoever, the Antichrist. And then at that point, we see because of Satan's designs, we see the, the persecution upon Israel increasing uh, like never before. 
Um, and then being told to flee, that's what jo- uh, Jesus talks about in the Gospel of Matthew when he talks about the end times. Pray that you're not pregnant. Pray that, uh, you know, it's not the Sabbath day. But go and flee, run, is what Jesus tells his people at that point. Uh, but we see at the end, we know the end of the story. At the end of that seven-year tribulation, the Lord comes back with ten thousands of his saints to strike down the Antichrist and his armies that are going against him and persecuting his people. And the Lord is the one uh, with his robes dipped in blood coming up from Basra, right? And he's judgment upon these nations, but he's the protector of Israel. Uh, Nehemiah and I were talking about this last week, just how uh, recognizing as we read the scriptures, how we see the Lord Jesus uh, pre-incarnate in, in his Christophany, a, a pre-incarnate before his uh, birth uh, and time on the earth that we read about in the Gospels. But this, these pre-incarnate appearances of Christ where he's the angel of the Lord or the word of the Lord that we see in the Old Testament prophetic books and, and historic books where he's there fighting on behalf of Israel, going before them and, and literally there fighting for them. Uh, and we will see that again with Jesus. And he's going to ransom them from the hand of one stronger than, uh, than Israel. In verse 12 it says, Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion, streaming to the goodness of the Lord, for wheat and new wine and oil and the young of the flock and the herd. Their souls shall be like a well-watered garden, and they shall sorrow no more at all. Then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance and the young men and the old together, for I will turn their mourning into joy, will comfort them and make them rejoice rather than sorrow. I will satiate the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, says the Lord. This is beautiful, you guys, to see the Lord doing this. Just this beautiful picture. Then we hit verse 15. Like Jeremiah does, we see things just switch up. It's for a little short time. It says, a voice was heard in Ramah. Lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Rama was the place where uh, Rachel was buried, Rachel being uh, one of the wives of Jacob. Remember, for a long time, she couldn't have children, and she was jealous of her sister Leah. The Lord opened her womb and gave her two sons. The two sons were Joseph and Benjamin picture of the northern tribe, Ephraim and Manasseh, and Benjamin, southern tribe, that small tribe that was with Judah. And we see this, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Ramah was also the place where when the Assyrians came in and took captive the northern tribes, that's where they staged all of them as slaves and chained them up and then dragged them out of the land. It was also the place after this where Nebuzaradan, one of the commanders of Nebuchadnezzar's army, did the same thing again with the southern tribes. So we see here a picture. They're going off in captivity. It says Rachel's weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Now we know from the New Testament 
that the New Testament gospel writers said that this was also fulfilled um, in the time of G- right after Jesus was born or around that time frame when Herod went and slayed all the young uh, baby boys, two, I think it was two years old and younger, uh, in Bethlehem in that area because he had heard that a king had been born in Israel. Uh, so we see this, again, near and far fulfillment of Bible prophecy here. But look at the Lord's response, verse 16. It says, Thus says the Lord, Refrain your voice from weeping. Stop weeping. And your eyes from tears. For your work shall be rewarded. The work of pouring forth tears and, and weeping is what that's talking about, says the Lord. And they shall come back from the land of the enemy. Again, near and far application. Look at verse 17. There is hope in your future, says the Lord, that your children shall come back to their own border. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, uh, the Lord says, I know the thoughts I have for you, uh, thoughts of hope and peace. Um, I'm butchering, quote, quoting that, but you guys know the verse there. But here he says, there's hope in your future. Again, another promise that your children shall come back to their own border. Now we've seen southern tribes, they came back from captivity in Babylon, right? We, we haven't seen the northern tribes come back. Um, they, there's never a time that we've seen recorded. So again, we have this future fulfillment of this prophecy when the Lord begins to bring back Israel into the land that started now but we'll see the ultimate fulfillment at the end of that seven-year tribulation. We look at verse 18. So again, it turns to more, uh, rather than the weeping, the bitter weeping of Rachel, now we see uh, the godly sorrow of Ephraim. It says, I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself. He says, you have chastised me. This is Ephraim speaking. And I was chastised. Like an untrained bull fighting against the bonds, the yoke. He says, restore me and I will return for you are the Lord my God. Surely after my turning, I repented. And after I was instructed, I struck myself on the thigh. I was ashamed, yes, even humiliated because I bore the reproach of my youth. And then the Lord says, is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For though I spoke against him, I earnestly remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, says the Lord. How beautiful is that? Godly sorrow produces repentance, you guys. It's not this fake being sorry because you got caught, but it's a recognition. Ephraim here, he says, you chastised me. Lord, you were rebuking me. You chastised me, and I was chastised. I took it. I was like an untrained bull, just fighting against what you had for me. And then he says, Lord, restore me and I will return. There's that humility. For you are the Lord my God. There's that remaining with the Lord. And then it says, surely after my turning, I repented. After I went away, I, I repented from that and I turned back to the Lord. After I was instructed or disciplined, I struck myself on the thigh. Didn't resist that discipline. He says, I was ashamed, yes, even humiliated, because I bore the reproach of my youth, knowing that he did all of these things, and he was rebellious against the Lord. And the Lord's loving response, he's my son. 
He, though I had to speak against him constantly, to chastise him, to rebuke him, to discipline, I still remember him. And I long for him to have that relationship with him and I'll have mercy on him. It's so beautiful. Verse 21, it says, set up signposts, make landmarks. There's a word play here. Um, the word for signposts, uh, it, it sounds like Mara, bitterness there. It's bitterness and leaving. Um, and the word, uh, I'm sorry, that's backwards. The word signpost, it sounds like Zion. And the word landmarks sounds like bitterness. So they're leaving Zion as they're setting up signposts. And they're going out in bitterness as they're making landmarks. But what does it say? Set your heart toward the highway, the way in which you went and turned back. So the Lord takes their bitterness and leaves it behind them and brings them back to Zion. It's a beautiful picture. The way in which you went. Turn back, O virgin of Israel. Turn back to these your cities. And then here's again this rebuke in this time. How long will you gad about, O you backsliding daughter? That's speaking of harlotry. Adultery. For the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall encompass a man. Uh, Through this rebuke the Lord has, yet here's this little blessing, this prophecy, this thing for them to pay attention to, to look at. That word created here is the same word in Genesis 1.1, created out of nothing, bara, is the word. There are Bible teachers who believe this is speaking of the virgin birth of Jesus. Um, I agree with them on that because of that word that's used, the Lord creating this new thing in the earth out of that has never been created before out of nothing. Um, the translation, it's difficult. Their Bible teachers say this is the most, most difficult verse in Jeremiah to translate here. But I I think that it does speak of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ here. And that sign, that early sign of the things that the Lord had in store for Israel to pay attention to. A woman encompassing a man. And then we jump into verse 23. says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, They shall again use this speech in the land of Judah and in its cities when I bring back their captivity. Fulfillment, again, of Bible prophecy uh, of the people of Israel being restored to the land and still having their language, their speech. What do we see? We've seen that fulfilled now. There's never been a nation like that before in all of history that lost their homeland, that was kicked out, lost their country, and yet retained their language, retained their religion, retained Uh, their national identity, and then has been restored back. That's what we've seen since Israel's restoration in 1948. Um, But this is a a Bible prophecy, if you were alive at the time, that was fulfilled at that moment, back in the land, speaking in their language. They shall again use this speech in the land of Judah and in its cities when I bring back their captivity. The Lord bless you, O home of justice and mountain of holiness. And they shall dwell in Judah itself and in all its cities together, farmers and those going out with flocks. For I have satiated the weary soul, and I have replenished every sorrowful soul. And then look at this. Uh, this is kind of a little, uh, little break in what's happening. And we see Jeremiah speak. He says, After this I awoke and looked around 
and my sleep was sweet to me. This must have come to him in a dream. But what do we see right after this is the new covenant that the Lord sets up with Israel. What I thought was interesting, if you remember the first covenant that the Lord gave with Abraham, what took place? How did the Lord seal that covenant with him? The Lord put him to sleep in a dark, deep sleep after he had cut those sacrifices, those animals, and separated them out as a sign of sealing the covenant. Typically, uh, the, the custom was for those two uh, parties that were making this agreement, this treaty, this covenant, was for both of them to pass through the midst of these things, in essence saying, if we break this covenant, let's, may we be like these cut up carcasses of dead animals and separated here. And as Abraham had done that and cut these animals in two and separated them and then waited on the Lord, the Lord put him to sleep. And rather than Abraham and the Lord walking through together, saying they were both responsible for fulfilling that covenant, it was just the Lord, a burning oven, like a burning oven that passed through, where the Lord in essence says, this is my covenant with you, Abraham, and I'm going to be the one to keep it. I'm responsible for this covenant to last. So that is how we look throughout all scripture, and we can see the Lord's not done with Israel. It's an everlasting covenant that he has with them because of Abraham. And it continues on, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David. And now what do we see? A covenant with all the families of Israel. The Lord is not done with Israel. He's promised them. It didn't matter that they, diso I mean, it did matter, but it didn't break the covenant for them to be disobedient to the Lord. That's his grace. It didn't break the Lord's everlasting covenant with them for them to reject the Messiah. That's his grace at his first coming. And we see that continuing on, the Lord's grace over and over and over and over again. And his promise, look at verse 27. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. And it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to throw down, to destroy, and to afflict. So I will watch over them to build and to plant, says the Lord. In those days they shall say no more. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Meaning uh, it's all the things that our, our dads did. Now we're reaping the punishment for them. We're reaping the consequences. That's what that pro proverb meant. In one sense, shifting the blame off of that generation for what was going on and saying it's our fathers got us to this point because they didn't listen to the Lord. But verse 30, it says, but everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Every man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. And the Lord is saying it's not going to be like that anymore. There'll be a recognition of personal responsibility at that time. No more shifting the blame. And then he jumps in, verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. 
No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. The Lord says, I will make this new covenant. Covenant. God will do it. It's him doing it. I will. God is going to do it, just like the first covenant. It's going to be a new covenant. The old one was not sufficient for them. Not that the covenant was broken. We see the land covenant, the promises, all of that. But it didn't, it didn't uh, bring Israel to righteousness. They failed in, in the calling that the Lord had placed on them, their responsibility because of that covenant. And the Lord says, I'm going to make a new covenant where you will be righteous, not because of what you have to do, not in the law, not in the sacrifices, but because I'm going to put my law in your heart. I'm going to put my words in your mind. I'm going to be your God and you shall be my people. I'm going to have a personal relationship with you. It's a new covenant with Israel and Judah, not just their fathers, not one individually, but the whole house, all the families. Not according to the covenant with the fathers. It's a new thing for them personally. It's for the latter days, we see it says, after those days. The Lord says, I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. The Lord would do the work for them, not them. It's not carnal striving according to the flesh. It's ingrained. The, the mind is the seat of thoughts and emotions. The heart is where the will, the instinct, the soul, the appetites come from. And both of them stamped with God's law. The Lord says, I will be their God. There's not going to be any more idolatry going after other gods. They will be my people. They're no longer cast off. They're not going to need to teach neighbors and family and other people about the Lord because the Spirit of God would be in each and every one of them personally. You guys, it's the same thing we have as believers. We don't, have, we don't see it with absolutely everyone, but if we've placed our faith in Him, we have the first fruits of this new covenant because the Lord has placed His Spirit in us as we place our faith in Him. The Lord writes His law in our minds and on our hearts. Because it's him, Mariel prayed it before uh, in worship time, that we would recognize the Lord being near to us and the Lord's love for us. That's what we have when we place our faith in him. He's not just outside. He's not a distant God. He's not just God up in heaven somewhere or some distant creator that set things in motion and sits back and watches. But it's him, his very presence his spirit within us when we place our faith in him. We have this blessing, the spirit of God. He says everyone in the house of Israel and Judah will know the Lord. They're going to have a personal relationship with him like we have. And the Lord says, I'll forgive their iniquity. It's the grace. His grace will there be there. Their sin will be remembered no more, blotted out. All these promises we've seen, we have in Jesus. And when Israel turns and places their faith in Jesus, they're going to have these promises too. We see that. I'm out of time, you guys. But I'd encourage you to read Hebrews chapter 8, 9, 10, if you have time. They go right along with what we're seeing here. 
the last few verses here in this portion of Scripture. I'm just going to read them so you know. But this again is showing God's not done with Israel. Verse 35, it says, Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Do we have the sun? We had a nice sunny day today. Saw the moon and the stars last night. They're still out. I live, we live up on a hill and can see the sound out there. Still see those waves. Some days I can hear them from our house. They're still going. Those ordinances, they haven't stopped. That means the seed of Israel will not cease from being a nation before the Lord forever. Then he says, verse 37, thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured, can we measure it? No. I don't believe the scientists who say they can measure one end of the universe to the other. Can't be done. That's what the Lord says. If heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out, we have our theories, but we don't really know what's underneath us. We don't really know. We can't search out and get down far enough to see what's down there. It says, if that can take place, I'll cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they've done. But the Lord says, nope, that's not the case. They're mine. And then the Lord talks about the restoration in Jerusalem. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. The city shall be built for the Lord. Not just for Israel, but for the Lord. Again, looking forward to the millennial kingdom. From the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. The surveyor's line shall again extend straight forward over the hill Gareb, then shall turn toward Goath. We don't really know where that's at, but we know it's in the city of Jerusalem. And it says, in the whole valley of dead bodies, remember that picture we saw? The valley of the son of Hinnom, Gehenna, that picture of hell, all of that. It says, that whole valley and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east, they're not going to be like that anymore. They're going to be holy to the Lord, set apart for him. It shall not be plucked up or thrown down anymore forever. Now again, if this was speaking of just the captivity in Babylon, we know days of Ezra and Nehemiah, they came back and they rebuilt Jerusalem, they rebuilt the temple. But what happened after Jesus' death and resurrection, about 30 or more years afterwards? Temple, destroyed by the Romans. Israel, ransacked, cast down, right? This is speaking of future here. The Lord has a plan for Israel. The Lord gives Jeremiah in chapter 32, just so you know how that's all working. The Lord tells him to buy a field from his cousin, and he does. And Jeremiah's going, hey, Lord, what are you doing here? You told me we're going off in captivity and judgment and punishment. The people haven't repented. They're still going after foreign false gods. They're still going after all of these other things. They haven't turned their their hearts back to you, Lord. And even now I can see the Chaldeans at our doorstep ready to strike us down. What am I doing buying a field? And the Lord says, well, this field is because you will come back. It's a sign of my promise that you're going to come back and people will buy fields again in Israel and in Judah and Jerusalem. And the Lord gives him that. And again, he, he does more. Read it if you haven't yet, because again, he gives more and more promises of his love for Israel. You guys... The application here for us, number one, the Lord loves us. He's gracious, kind, compassionate. 
the Lord, he deals with sin, and we as his people need to be willing to receive his correction like Ephraim talks about there. We need to be prepared. If we've been rebellious against the Lord, if we've turned against him, or, or if we're not listening to him and heeding his word, we need to be ready for those consequences. The Lord resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Right? We need to be those people who are humble before him. We were talking about that at our men's night on Monday, about having humility before the Lord. And how sometimes the Lord can humiliate us to get to that point. But we don't have to be there. We can also, if we recognize his righteousness and his holiness and recognize our sinfulness and our weakness, if we're in that place where we have the right perspective, then we, have, we can have that humility without being humiliated by our sin. We need to be in that place before him. We need to recognize just the beautiful promises that we have. You guys, again, I'm going late here, but the, the promises towards Israel, read those verses and look at the context around all of those verses on that little printout that I gave you. You guys, we get to experience that. The Lord says that, that we will rule with him in his kingdom that he sets up. We're going to see the grace of the Lord towards the people of Israel. We're going to see their salvation. We're going to get to experience the blessings of Jesus' kingdom as he's ruling and reigning in Israel. We get to see these things. We get to see the transformation of the people of Israel. You guys, there was a law that they just tried to pass in Israel where they were going to ban, um, in essence, sharing the gospel for Christians in Israel. They already have laws against proselytizing people of a certain age. They had that in France when Marielle and I were there in Paris. We couldn't talk to anyone under the age of 18 about the Lord. It's just crazy. Um, but they wanted to ban it. Fortunately, uh, Netanyahu said, no, we're, I'm not going to allow any laws against the Christians in our country at this point. But if you've ever talked to or spoken to um, some Orthodox Jews, a lot of times they're very, very resistant against the gospel and against anything that has to do with Jesus or Christianity. But what we're, we're going to see is we're going to see all of a sudden this change, that the Lord is going to do a spiritual miracle for Israel where they're going to be changed into the people that God called them to be from the beginning, the light for the nations. The Lord, he's the mediator of the new covenant for us. The Holy Spirit that's given through the shed blood of Jesus is the means of the fulfillment of the new covenant in us and for the people of Israel again. Uh, and God's promise to Israel is immutable and God's promises to us as his children are immutable as well, meaning they don't change. They don't change. God does not change. There's no shadow of turning with him. We need to cling to the Lord. We need to cling to him and his word and his promises. We need to be obedient to him and his disciples and following him. Times may get harder, but if we have the end in mind, if we have that right perspective about eternity that we get to spend with the Lord, but not just eternity, but these earthly blessings that we will get to experience as we come back with the Lord, all of those things that we get to take part in, it's amazing. So if we have that perspective, then that's like we... Um, saying in worship, we have 
the, the promise of the cross and those things that we have. That's the anchor for our soul. But what does that open up for us? It opens up everything else that gives us the hope and the future that the Lord has for us. The cross is not even just the beginning. The beginning is from before the foundation of the world, right? But the cross is that change, that thing that the Lord did to open the door for us. And then, but everything that we have afterwards, we're looking forward to. We have to look forward to. Uh, We need to get our heads out of getting so upset and focused about the things going on around us and remember what we have in store for us. And that gives us the drive and the right perspective to then deal in the right way with these issues and problems that we're experiencing. It's all about the perspective that we have. Let's pray. Sorry, I went long.